Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 044, Homer's Iliad, book 13, part 3, and we are going to try our very best to finish book 13 today on the day after Easter. I hope you had a wonderful one. All right, last time we finished making connections between Aeneas and uh, the Christ figure, as well as showing that Aeneas um, is very much interested in taking the lead in this battle because he feels himself um, superior to how he is treated by Priam. His accomplishments and his rank and his name go unrecognized by the leading authority of Troy. And seeing as he is a rather gifted warrior who has uh, essentially come back from the dead and having his hip crushed and then immediately healed by Apollo as Pion, or Pion, he, um, he is a miraculous figure that represents the capacity for Troy to renew itself even after it has been destroyed. But unfortunately, it will have to be destroyed for him in order to realize his true potential. And so, well, there's actually an interesting philosophical question there. Uh, is it, in fact, the unrealized potential of an individual that is um, that in being realized restores and improves a society. At least in the case of Aeneas, the question seems to be um, clearly yes. And so, well, we were in the middle of a fight yesterday, so let's get back to it, and we're going to get plenty of fighting today. So, Aeneas charges, and Idomeneus, flanked by the best of the, as I described, the minor Achaean champions, sort of like a, a minor league all-star game here. Well, he's he's flanked by a Scalaphos, son of Ares. Uh, who does happen to be an Achaean here, though, and recall that Ares is on the side of the Trojans. Pharius, Deiparus, Marianes, and Antilochus. And, and Idomeneus summons them to his side because he sees the flower of youth upon Aeneas. And so just as Deiphobos uh, reflected upon seeing Idomeneus and decided to get Aeneas, who had good cause to hate Idomeneus because of his uh, recent killing of the brother-in-law of Aeneas, well... <clears throat> so now does Idomeneus show some wisdom um, and also recognition of the power and strength of Aeneas. Aeneas himself then shows charisma and leadership with his magnetic effect um, by summoning Deiphobos, Paris, and Agenor. And these three individuals are impressive individuals to summon to him and to subject or to subordinate to his charisma because uh, Deiphobos and Paris are both sons of Priam. And Agenor is the son of Antenor, and so these are the sons of the leading and second leading man of Troy. And Aeneas, as uh, as mentioned in the quote from last time, does not receive that sort of recognition um, in name or in treatment by the leaders above, but clearly he is recognized for what he is by his compatriots, especially when it matters in battle on the battlefield. So it's as if the coach doesn't recognize his worth, but all the players around him do. Um, and so let's keep moving so we don't get too bogged down today. As when, and this is a description of um, Aeneas as a shepherd and his men as sheep, even leading men. As when the sheep follow the lead ram, and recall that lead ram image being used of Odysseus from book three. As they leave the pasture to drink and make proud the heart of the shepherd, and thus also the heart of Aeneas was gladdened with him as he saw the swarm of the host 
following his own leadership. And so I, I mentioned Odysseus and people following his ordering influence and Aeneas now doing the same. Aeneas effectively being something of an image to Odysseus, which is certainly the idea that Virgil will have in writing his Aeneid, which will have both an Iliadic half and an Odyssey an Odysseic half, and um, Dante will make this connection as well in his um, Divine Comedy. And so Aeneas, as he leads the best of the Trojans, so do all men follow him in a swarm. And um, so that which is reflected in the best man is also reflected in the best men, which is also reflected in all men. And so you can see even in the sort of trickle-down virtue-nomics of this situation, um, one can see also the sort of um, change of political system from monarchy to aristocracy to um, to democracy. And one sees this um, in religious influences. One sees this in the Egyptian religion when it was the pharaoh who alone had an Adam soul. And then it was the aristocracy. And then it was all. Uh, one sees this in the Greek um, people recognizing the sort of individual value of each individual or, or the spark of the divine which existed within each person which uh, requires that one treat each person with respect and with certain rights in order appropriately to honor the divine so as not to bring curse and chaos uh, on one's name. And so just as above so below with Aeneas and all those following him. And so this reflects a time when the Trojans are following a, an appropriate leader. And so this will probably be a pretty good time for them. So Idomeneus casts first, but we're not going to get straight to uh, Idomeneus first. Aeneas, if even we do, Homer being the mad, the master storyteller that he is. And so Idomeneus casts and he strikes on. Oinomaos in the middle belly, and um, there are going to be some rather gruesome and painful, emotionally and nauseatingly, uh, uh, physically painful deaths today. So um, gird, gird yourself up for this. Uh, gird your loins, as as uh, Homer would say, and as uh, the art of manliness actually has an article on how to do in order to prepare for battle. All right, and so Deiphobos then casts and hits Ascalaphos, son of Ares, and this will this will be a big uh, deal in Book 15 near the beginning because Ares will not notice until Hera brings it to his attention after her very famous seduction of Zeus, which we will be getting to next time. And Deiphobos then attempts to strip the armor from Ascalaphos, but Mariane strikes him in the arm with his spear, and as he does this, Pelides. Uh, appears to grab Deiphobos about the waist to save him. And so I, I mentioned last lecture that there is some notion here of the aristocratic privilege of fighters that uh, because Deiphobos is a the son of a king and Pleiades also is there, um, not only does Deiphobos have more brothers there because of his king's, because of his father's successful uh, status in, um, in, in the dominance hierarchy, but also... Um, Because of his increased wealth, he could, if he were captured, he might be captured rather than killed in order to be ransomed. Um, and even if he were not ransomed directly to his father, which we'll see happen um, later on in the text, I think book 20, um, he could then be ransomed from the person he was ransomed to by his father, which would also be a fairly common occurrence. But um, uh, the, the sort of advantage here seems to be that because 
he is high in rank, there are people around who see him as high in rank and will make sure that he does not die as, uh, insofar as it is possible for them to do that. And so Pleiades grabs Deiphobus, seeing him as a high rank individual, also as his brother, and takes him out of the fighting. So Aeneas fights. First and foremost, he kills Apharius with a lunging spear stroke to the throat. Uh, Antilochus then kills Thoon uh, in response to this and tries to grab his armor, but there are too many missiles thrown at him and it's said that Poseidon protects him. Adamas then attacks Antilochus, but Poseidon rebuffs him. And as he reti- retreats, and Mariannes is going to earn his name here, and as promised, here is the first uh, very, very gruesome kill, uh, besides, you know, already having a lunging spear stroke to the throat. Mariannes dogging him through with the spear and struck between the navel and genitals where beyond all places death in battle comes painfully to pitiful mortals and uh book 13 lines 567 to 569 and well perhaps even uh sad well and to finish the description there the spear stuck fast driven and he writhing about it gasped as an ox does when among the mountains the herdsmen have bound him strongly in twisted ropes and drag him unwilling so he stricken gasped for a little while but not long until fighting Mariannes came close and wrenched the spear out from his body in a mist of darkness closed over both eyes so that's one of Mariannes' ugliest kills, killing, uh, striking in person in the place between the navel and the genitals, which is where death in battle comes painfully to pitiful mortals. And then you hear that the man gasps like a bound ox being dragged uh, by men with ropes until he finally dies after Mariannes pulls the spear out of him. Oh, brutal. Well, in response to this, Helenos then strikes down Deiparos, and this summons Menelaus to fight in sorrow for his friend. And Helenos looses a bitter arrow, which rebounds off the chest piece of Menelaus. And Menelaus then stabs at Helenos, and his spear goes not only through the bow of Helenos, but also through his hand. And he, as he, he, he moves and he shrinks back into the host with his now mangled hand, and Agnor uh, approaches quickly to bandage him. Paysandros then approaches Menelaus, and Paysandros and Menelaus fight. And this is a big fight. This is an interesting fight. Menelaus misses his throw, and Paysandros, he he breaks his spear in Menelaus' shield, and then he draws his axe, and uh, Menelaus draws his sword, and this is how much... um, this uh, this game, as so many games, is a game of inches. And so Pisandro strikes with his axe above Menelaus' head and so close to Menelaus' head that he strikes the horse hair that's on the crest above the helmet. <clears throat> but Menelaus, and uh, of all the rather gnarly kills that one sees today, it is perhaps Menelaus that has the worst. And so... Menelaus struck him as he came onward in the forehead over the base of the nose and smashed the bone so that both eyes dropped bloody and lay in the dust at his feet before him. He fell curling. Uh, Lines um, 
Line 615 to 619. And then to add insult to injury, uh, Menelaus gives a long, long soliloquy above the dead body uh, and now eyeless body, blind and dead body of Pesandros. So I think, and these are lines 620 to 639, shall you leave the ships of the fast mountain Danaans, you haughty Trojans, never to be glutted with the the firm, grim war noises, never to be glutted with the grim war noises, nor go short of all that other shame and defilement wherewith you defiled me, wretched dogs, and your hearts knew no fear at all of the hard anger of Zeus, loud thundering, the guest's god, who someday will utterly suck your sheep city. And so Menelaus suggests that the theme of the entire war here is that because of the breaking of the Zinnia, or the guest-host relationship, which is honored by Zeus, which is that which maintains the trust between people so that they can cooperate and not enter into perpetual war, conflict, um, that it is precisely because of breaking the social order, the will of Zeus, um, that which uh, binds people together that the Trojans will ultimately fall. But he, he will express some puzzlement at how this is going to come to be, because, of course, the ways of Zeus are mysterious not only to Hera, but to man as well. You who in vanity went away, taking with you my wedded wife and many possessions when she had received you in kindness. And now... Once more you rage among our seafaring vessels to throw deadly fire on them and kill the fighting Achaeans, but you will be held somewhere, though you be so headlong for battle. Father Zeus, they say your wisdom passes all others of men and gods, and yet from you all this is accomplished. The way you give those out Outrageous people, your grace. These Trojans whose fighting strength is a thing of blind fury. Notice there the distinction between Athena and Ares. The strength of the Trojans is blind fury. No skill involved. All enthusiasm, a negative enthusiasm, which would be fury. That which negative emotion overflowing, just as uh, enthusiasm is good emotion overflowing. And notice in Theo there the god within, uh, suggesting a connection between motivation and emotion and godliness. And also notice how quickly emotion can take over, um, as fast as thought, one might say, or faster. Um, and so whose fighting strength is a thing of blind fury, nor can they ever be glutted full of the close encounters of deadly warfare. And so there's a there's a note there that Aristotle will make big of in the 4th century um, BCE when he talks about the ideal of the mean that's represented in the very middle of Raphael's The School of Athens, where Aristotle is holding his work, the ethics, clearly, uh, certainly the Nicomachean ethics, not the Eudemian, um, and is holding his hand flat while Plato points to the heavens while holding the Timaeus, suggesting that the law of the heavens is the law of the earth, or rather, the law of ethics is 
true metaphysics and that how to behave on this earth is uh, the bringing about of the kingdom of the forms, which would later be called the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> and so in that work, the idea is that all things must be properly balanced and tempered. And so the Trojans here, not only do they not maintain the Xenia, the ultimate human custom, which is to treat other humans with human dignity, stranger, stranger as guest, uh, all humans alike, um, but they also do not recognize the appropriate balance in things, and they can never be fulfilled to the appropriate proportion. They lack proportionality. And therefore, as a people who lacks the notion of proportionality and therefore fairness, they will be doomed to fall. And so this makes perfect sense, too, when one notices that their, their best leader, Aeneas, is not treated fairly as well. And so this will mean very good things for the people, however, who will come from the Trojans, or at least the fair line of the Trojans, those from Aeneas. And those people will be called Romans much later on. And we'll get into that when we get into that. Since there is satiety in all things, in sleep, in lovemaking, in the loveliness of singing, and in the innocent dance, in all these things a man will strive sooner to win satisfaction than in war. <sighs> but in this the Trojans cannot be glutted. And so in there Menelaus attacks very strongly on two points the character of the Trojans, that they do not honor the Xenia and will thus be destroyed, and that they know not fairness and proportion in their actions, and know not when a good thing turns into a bad thing. Uh, in taking too much of a good thing, it can become a bad thing, and that it breaks the proportion. And if your, say, bicep becomes too big and strong and tight, eventually it may well explode. If your your shoes get too comfortable and fitting, eventually you may or rather, they become too snug and too tightly fitting, even though you may not have any extra space within them. It will be much easier to break them or to break your heel out of them. Well, I guess actually painting would be the best metaphor or writing, because if if all you did was focus on the ink or on the paint, then um, the ink on a page, which would be used to represent the magical system or the magical symbols, which are words, would eventually just overtake the page and just be ink, a massa confusa, rather than a form. And just the same with painting, if one were just to paint with one color or with all colors altogether, rather than discriminating them out, segregating them out, and placing each in its proper capacity and place one forms an image, say, of a lonely island on the sea, um, rather than just a formless mass of nothing, like that chaos from which all the titanic, chthonic, and Olympian gods originally came. And so, back from the heavens and the chaos to the chaos of war and the earth, another brutal kill, and another man never to return home to his father. This is now Harpalion, described as the son of King Pylemenes, and well, he attacks the shield of Menelaus, and um, in attacking Menelaus, though he doesn't injure him, he will fall subject to the maxim that when a lesser character attempts a greater character, he is doomed quickly to die, and in fact, as he attempts 
Uh, as he attempts to escape from his fate, Marianne stabs him under the bone to fix the bladder. And there, sitting among the arms of his beloved companions, he gasped out his life, then lay like a worm, nothing more ignominious or ignoble than a worm, extended along the ground, and his dark blood drenched the ground and its running, and the great-hearted Paphlagonians busied about him, lifted him into a chariot, and brought him to sacred Ilion in sorrow. And his father, weeping tears, walked beside them, and, and no man price came his way for his son slain. Book 13, lines 654 to 659. And again, we see, and rather, as, as promised earlier in the lectures, in the first lecture, we now see uh, a father having to walk alongside the corpse of his dead son. And this will not be the last time that we see this during the Iliad. And so seeing this sight, Paris is angered. And of course, this is partly his fault. And also... He had been guest friend to the Paphlagonians at some point, which should make him feel all the worse that he's brought this ultimate sorrow onto his friends, not simply his allies. And so he strikes down Eucanor, who chose rather to die among the Achaeans than of sickness as his father, Palides, or Paluides is how it would be said in Greek, but Paliades, excuse me, yes, told him he must. And so... Just as Achilleus has a choice now whether to live out a long life that will earn him no fame or to live out a short life with great fame, and although he's already sacked 23 cities, it's hard to say whether he could live a life without fame now and done what he's done for over nine years in the Trojan War. But, um, well, this man, this Eucanor also had a choice to die of sickness at home or to die at Troy. And his father himself was the prophet who told him this. And while well, he chose to die amongst his people, amongst his friends on the battlefield rather than of sickness. And well, the scene then shifts to Hector. And so ends the minor league, uh, the minor league um, Achaean first Trojan all-star game. And so we then have a description of the Athenians, Locrians, Phythians, which is probably wrong given that the Phythians follow uh, um, Achilleus, at least in terms of Myrmidons, unless this is some alternative uh, Phythian group not under, not subject to his control. The Boeotians, the Ionians, and the Apeans are all offered a united front against Hector and the Trojans. Basically, we get a description of all these people being there fighting as hard as they can because this is an all-out struggle against the Trojans. And Hector continues to fight near where he broke through the Achaean Wall by as the Greater and Protosileus' ships, and the Iontes continued to defend the ships. In fact, so many people are supporting Telamonian Ias by holding his massive shield while he is tired so that he can have a break, but that's the only thing he needs. He just needs a second. He's little LeBron James out there right now. And so Locrian Ias, Ias the Lesser, is by Ias the Greater's side the entire time shooting arrows. And it's even explicitly said that no other Locrians were willing to uh, get so close to the fray. And so uh, Ias the Lesser is just as brave as Ias the Greater and is not willing to leave his side. And so these sort of twin dragons or twin named uh, uh, individuals are 
are keeping the Trojans back, though the Trojans have the will of Zeus behind them, uh, showing the great and the fine and the disciplined character and the tremendous values held by the Achaeans. And so, as this continues to go on, Pulidamus, recall the good counselor to Hector, who's often at odds with him, advises Hector to listen to reason. And he says, let us fall back, take counsel, and figure out how to deal with Aeus the Greater, because this is not working. Hector responds, let the others retreat. I will fight on. And he goes looking for his brothers, Helenos and Deiphobos. And well, he finds Paris lurking off to the side. And he addresses him as he always addresses him. Evil Paris, cajoling and lets him have it, lets him have it for all of us and for all of Troy as well. And he says, where is everybody? Where is Helenos? Where is Deiphobos? Where is Asius? Where is Adamus? Where is Othryonius? And, well, Paris gives a useless little answer saying, well, our brothers are, uh, they're injured, but they're okay. They'll be okay. Um, they're not, they're not dead, but, uh, those other three guys, they're dead. And so book 13 ends with Aias the Greater issuing a challenge to Hector and Hector responding, calling Aias an inarticulate ox. And I think it's from this comment likely that both Ovid and the Athenian playwrights took the notion that uh, that Aias was a, a bit of a simple-minded uh, individual. Uh, there may be more in the Scolia suggesting that as well, but he speaks rather well, I would say, to Achilleus, um, though nobody seems to speak as a pure fool, besides perhaps Dolon in um, the Iliad. But Hector says, you inarticulate ox. Aias. And if if only he were the son of Zeus and Hera, and were honored like Apollo, right aim, and Athena, he would kill Aias and all the Achaeans. And the fact that he's sharing this wish, this, this wish fulfillment, this desire with someone who he should be aiming to kill, he should be showing his will to kill him, his aim, his uh, Apollonian nature, by trying to strike down Aias, not sharing what he wishes he could do if he had additional um, uh, strengths and resources, which he does not have. That is not what a, a winning individual does, and that is certainly not how one wins uh, or, or adapts most effectively to any situation by insisting that if one had something additional, one could win. That, that's the sort of thing one says in order to mitigate the loss that is certainly coming. And so even though Hector has the help of Zeus, he doesn't have enough help of Zeus uh, to totally defeat Aias in this moment. And so we end book 13. Well, it's been wonderful doing this so far. We're almost to book 14. We're about 10 books away from finishing the Iliad. And it's looking like we might have enough material here to put together a book. Um, which is something I'm very interested in doing, um, and it would be my, the first book I, I would have written, and um, it's looking like I might be able to put uh, together some sort of book on this lecture course and on the other four major epics I write as well as, or that I teach and have written lectures on, um, and perhaps many, many other works as well. And so, um, well, let's keep doing this and let's see what happens. This has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 044. Uh, this book 13, part 3 of Homer's Iliad. And next time, we'll get on to book 14 and, well, the disobedience of Hera and Poseidon and the seduction of Zeus. <laughs>